The following is Kyle Susi's talk, Unmoderated Remote Usability Testing, Good or Evil, from the 2011 Information Architecture Summit. The 2011 IA Summit podcasts are brought to you by UIE's User Experience Training Library, with scores of online seminars your team can access on demand. Hear the field's top experts on timely topics and the current design challenges you're facing. Get a free UIE virtual seminar at uie.com slash IAS11. Hi, everyone. I have the pleasure to introduce you to Kyle Susie. I've known Kyle for quite a long time. She's been an absolute amazing mentor for me for bringing in remote research at Comcast, where I used to work. So I'm really excited to see what she has to say about unmoderated remote usability testing. So I'm not going to take up any more time. Thanks, Crystal. Let me start off by saying, if you've never met me before, surprise. It's not a man. <laughs> That's usually the reaction I get. <laughs> Hopefully it's a pleasant surprise. All right, let's start this off with a poll. Unmoderated remote usability testing. Good, show of hands. Wow, okay, good portion. Evil, is it dangerous to our industry? There's a few of you, don't be shy. Okay. How about undecided? You either, you're not sure what it is, you're not sure whether or not it's good or bad. Okay, hopefully we will rectify that right now. What is unmoderated remote usability testing? Basically, it's just like doing usability testing, but you're taking the moderator out of the equation. It's just like it's titled. So, these automated tools exist now that provide a task elicitation that asks users to perform a task using a website or a prototype, and it records their behavior. Sounds really great, huh? There's no need for me anymore. There's automated moderating. It's not quite like that, though. So this is kind of what it looks like. Here is a screenshot of Amazon.com. And I'm going to highlight for you at the top, there is a frame set of a remote, unmoderated usability testing tool called Keynote. Keynote is one of the more popular and more expensive tools that are out there right now. And what this is doing is at the top, it's asking the user to perform a task. And the user has the option to perform that task by browsing through on Amazon. And at the top, there are some buttons there on the right that says that the user can either answer that task, they can actually provide some in-context feedback, or they can quit the task. So that's how these tools work. They do task elicitation. Now, there is a lot of controversy in this. Obviously, for those of us who do research and moderated testing, we're worried are our jobs being replaced by these tools. And I'm here to tell you, no, that is not the case. And of course, my back end was up very high when these tools first came up, and I was just like, whoa, what's going on? And they keep coming out. There's so many of these tools. But don't be afraid of them. I encourage you to embrace them, and we're going to talk about the benefits and the cons of them. Okay, so. The tools. There are so many tools, and actually just at the beginning here, Dennis was nice enough to tell me about a new tool I didn't even know about yet. As far as I know, there are 29 of these tools that exist. But I want to preface right now that there are some tools we're not going to talk about. These tools listed up here, Userfly, Clicktail, Tealeaf, they call themselves usability testing tools, but they're not because they don't do task elicitation. In my mind, a usability test consists of asking somebody to perform a task using a product and observing their behavior at their simplest form. These tools don't do that, but they call themselves usability testing tools. Now, what they do, do is very neat stuff. It's good data. They actually provide you 
with web analytic data in a very different way. They do log file analysis, but they turn that log file data and they turn it into actual video of user sessions on your website, which is very cool. So you can actually see a real user session, but a video of it. You're not reading what people did. You're not reading the click path. You're seeing it. Did they scroll or not? So this is very valuable data, but it's not usability testing. So what are we going to talk about? There's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of tools, like I said. 29 tools. Now, I think with Dennis's tool, that makes 30. And that tool is called Click Test. And I don't think I have it up there. So yeah, I did not have that one. Every quarter, even less than that, I'm seeing another tool come out. I can't believe how many there are. And they essentially do, I will get flack for saying that they essentially do the same thing. But at their core, <laughs> they kind of do. They're unmoderated remote usability testing tools. and. Eventually, I don't know when, but some of these tools have to start dying out and the best of breed have to start showing. It just can't keep going. This list can't keep getting longer. What's the most amazing thing about this is that they actually range in price dramatically. Some of them only cost $30 to do one usability test. Some cost $10,000, $10,000. So where do you start as a researcher? You're interested in doing this? You want to get your feet wet? Where do you start? How do you even consider judging these tools? How do you rate them? Luckily for you, I've done a lot of research on this. In the last two years, when these tools first started coming out, they really interested me. I wanted to learn more about them. And I have a handout for you that I'm going to give you the link to, to download. And this handout is a really great starting point to showing you price comparisons, feature comparisons. I've done a lot of the legwork for you, so hopefully you find it very useful. But we're going to talk a little bit about some of them during this session as well. Now that we know what we're talking about, has anybody used these tools? OK, great. Good. OK, it'll be interesting at the end if we have time, if room after questions, if anyone wants to share their experiences, I welcome it too. OK, so. What can you learn from these tools? Well, it really depends on the tool you use. And I would hope that this would be true, because if you're spending $30 for a usability test versus $10,000, I want there to be a difference in the data. I want some more richness in the one that costs more. So that is there. But I do want to let you know that there's some commonalities. So when you're using these tools, you're almost always going to get certain metrics. So I'm going to tell you what they are. It's really about the difference between quantitative data and qualitative data. As you know, we do research and usability testing, we're always getting qualitative data. Sometimes we're always stressed for and asked to get statistically significant data. Unfortunately, we cannot provide that. But with unmoderated usability testing tools, we might be able to do that. And there's a way we can do that. We're going to talk about that, but first, what are some of the quantitative data that we can get? There's web analytic data. So just like with a survey tool, you'll get that data as who used it, who actually took a test, where were they located, what operating system did they have, did they have JavaScript enabled, Do they have Flash. So that's good data. You might be interested in that. Task completion rates, so out of how many people who tried to attempt a task, how many people actually passed it, how many failed, how many abandoned the task. Number of clicks and click stream. Now, this screenshot is actually taken from Userlytics. And Userlytics is a pretty interesting tool. So click path is really very valuable data. When somebody does attempt a task, what path do they take? So that information is automatically captured. Time on task, time on page. 
satisfaction ratings and opinion ratings. Now, a lot of these tools have the option if after you ask them to perform a task, you can also ask them how they felt about the experience of performing that task. True intent, now we're getting to the qualitative data. So most of that stuff was quantitative. This right here is where you get those open-ended responses. So some of these tools actually allow you to do live intercept recruiting, which is wonderful, where you can, if you have an online product, a website, and you want to recruit people who come to your website, you want to stop them in their tracks and say, hey, would you like to participate in this study? They do that. Now, this is a screenshot of Ethnio that actually partners with some of these tools. So when somebody does get recruited live, you can ask them, why did you come to the site? What was your reason for being there? And that's extremely valuable data. Now, in-context feedback, to me, this is the best data that you can get. This is qualitative data. What it is, this is a screenshot of Loop 11, and this is actually a screenshot from some research that I did for an online appliance website. And what you can do is open-ended questions. You can ask them, you know, what did you think about the experience of completing that task? Or did you have all the information that you needed on this page? And the open-ended responses is really where the richness of the data comes in, not did they complete the task or not, but how do they feel about it. This right here, I'm only offered a search by model number. How ridiculous. Another one. I would like to see the product's availability and delivery shipping information listed. Now, this data is actionable data. This is data that I can make design decisions based on. So this is good data. Now, how actionable this data is truly depends on the questions that you're asking. So let's talk about how you ask these questions with conducting the test. Now, so the process is very similar to regular usability testing. You define the study first. Now, the questions here are different. You don't want to ask scavenger hunt questions, and you don't want to do this whether it's moderated or unmoderated. You don't want to have somebody just say, here, find X. Oh, great, they found it. You want to test the content. Is the content valuable? So ask them questions about the content. Have them answer a question so that you know that that content was written properly because they could actually answer that question. Like, where is X located? They have to read it to know where it's located. It's not just finding. So that's even more important when you're doing unmoderated because we're not there to probe in person and to ask them those deeper questions. So we have to make sure our tasks are really deep. It gets them deeper into the site or product. Recruiting participants. Now, you have a lot of options. Just like with moderated testing, you can do do-it-yourself, you can do live intercept, you can hire a recruiting agency, or some of them have their own prepaid recruiting panels. Now, we're going to talk a lot about this. This is a big danger area. <laughs> I'm going to hold up on explaining that a little bit. So you launch the test. Now, the difference with a unmoderated test is that it does not last anywhere near as long, usually, as a moderated test, usually only about 25, 30 minutes long, consisting only of about three to five tasks. This is hugely different. So we're not able to gather as much data. We're not sitting one-on-one -on -one with these users for an hour long. So you have to consider that and how you create a test. And you send out email invites just like you would with a survey. So with a survey, you're sending it out to hundreds of people. You do the same thing with an unmoderated test. You're sending it out to as many people as you want. Now, the next step, analyzing the results. Really no difference here. You have that quantitative data that you can actually compile. That is a difference. But there's another step. And hopefully you are always doing this step, even with moderated testing. It's running a pilot test. 
I can't tell you how frustrated I am when somebody does not run a dry run or do a pilot test before they do a study. This is so important. You are always going to find something you want to change in the flow of the test, whether the questions make sense, the order of the questions make sense, the flow. This is even more important when you're doing an unmoderated test because once you send that test out to hundreds, maybe even a thousand people, you can't take it back when you notice either if it's as small as a typo or you just totally botched the task and you totally biased your results. So you really have to run a pilot test before you actually launch this thing. Okay, so let's talk about some of the benefits. First and foremost, again, like I said, testing hundreds of people simultaneously. We cannot do this now moderated. It's impossible. It's not needed with qualitative research. You know, with qualitative research, we know how many times does someone have to fail at a task before we know it's a problem, right? Well, with unmoderated testing, people want numbers. They want those big numbers. So that's what we give them. We're able to actually get that. And we're actually able to get it in real time and simultaneously. And keeping users in their own natural environment. We're always striving for that. Testing multiple websites simultaneously. So if you have different brands you want to test, you want to do some competitive analysis, you have different geographic locations, different geographic websites that you want to test at the same time, you can do that. Reduce costs. Now, I caution you, this is not always the case if you're picking one of those $10,000 tools. So it depends on the tool you use, but you could have some reduced costs. Now, it is a wonderful way. If you are new to research or your company is new to it, they're scared of it, they're short on resources, it's a wonderful way to actually start planting that seed of user-centered design into the company, into the process. It's something to try, and it's something to get people excited about getting data from people, from their actual customers. There's obviously fewer logistics to manage. Now, I never have a testing day that looks like this. I swear, I dye my hair now because of, one, my son, and then also because of <laughs> the testing days are stressful. You're dealing with no-shows. You're dealing with client feedback. There's just a ton to manage. You don't have any of that with unmoderated testing. You send the link out, and you just wait for the results to come in. It's a definite benefit. Faster results. So some of these tools allow you to get results in real time. Some actually <laughs> let you get the results within about 24 hours. Some that offer video maybe compile it and offer it in about four to six days, but it's pretty quick data. Okay, the drawbacks. There is nothing that beats watching someone perform a task in real time and actually being able to probe it on what they're doing. That is so important. I will never, as a researcher, give that up. If I have the option to do that, I am always going for that. So. I can't argue with that. That is definitely a drawback. Some people are only interested in the honorarium. Now, this is a problem in moderated testing as well, but it's even more so of a problem in unmoderated testing because you're opening it up to hundreds of people. So you have to be very careful, and it's harder to screen these people out. Now, you cannot conduct interview-based tests. And this is a real problem for me. For me, I have totally adopted this new method of, and it's not really new, it's been around for a while, but improv testing, taking our testing script and throwing it away, not having this Bible and this script that we cannot stray from as we're testing. And I must ask you question six because it's right here. Whether you perform this task or not on this product, I'm going to ask you to perform it. That's just data that is biased. It doesn't belong in your analysis. You want to be able to ask somebody to say, hey, how do you use this product? OK, great. Show me. It's as simple as that. 
let them show you how they use the product. If you put something in someone's hands and say, okay, I want you to do X with it, and they look at you and say, hmm, I didn't even know you could do that with this product. Okay, well, I'll do it because you asked me to. How different is that data? How intrigued in that task will they be? They're gonna be completely different. The data is gonna be different. They're gonna be looking at the interface differently. You cannot do this with unmoderated tasks. You have to have predefined tasks. Okay, so looking again at the metrics that you get, at the quantitative data, let's see how valuable this really is. We know as researchers now that this doesn't mean anything. We don't care how people rate their experience. We don't care what they say. We're researchers, we observe them, we care what we watched. We care about what we watched them do. They may say they had a great time doing that task and struggled the entire time, so we know better. We know this doesn't really matter. Okay, task completion rates. This may sound like it's a good data point, but really, with a lot of these tools, users have to know that they actually ended a task before they're able to go on to the next task. So they can say, yes, I completed this task and move on. The problem is that a lot of these tasks, people may think that they actually completed it and they didn't. So that's a problem there when you're gathering this data and making decisions based on it. Time on task, time on page, this blows my mind that people actually care about this metric. Why does it matter if it took someone longer to do a task? You know, if the task is written properly, if you have the proper people doing a task, if they're properly motivated and a real reason to do it, they're probably more entrenched in the data. They care more about the content. There could be a lot of reasons why they do a task faster or longer than someone else. So you have to be careful to make assumptions based on this data. I'm not saying it's bad, but why does this matter so greatly? Okay, so when do we conduct this testing? It's something that should be done in conjunction with your qualitative testing. The consensus seems to be, and I agree with it, that it is not a replacement for doing good qualitative research. It's supposed to complement it. And when it's done that way, it's wonderful. When you have stakeholders breathing down your neck saying, that's great, but you only talk to five or six people, how in the world am I supposed to make a design decision that costs maybe a million dollars based on that? They want numbers, they're used to getting numbers. They want that statistically significant number. And that's something we can't provide them with the research that we do moderated. But this allows us to do that. So do your study, talk to your six customers, get your data, and then get your key findings and try and validate possibly some of them by doing unmoderated testing and getting hundreds of numbers behind that. That's really the best way, the best marriage of these tools with our research. Okay, so let's take a closer look at these tools. Okay, so as I mentioned before, there are recruiting panels and they're evil. <laughs> what is a recruiting panel? Okay, a recruiting panel is pretty much someone who is paid to do usability testing over and over and over again. Whether they are the actual end users of the product or not. So that's kind of frustrating because they have to step in the shoes of the user. They're not actually the user. And when you're paid to do something, you have a totally different motivation for doing it. You're not motivated to make the product better because you use it on a daily basis. You're motivated because usertesting.com is paying you $10 for every 15 minutes you spend reviewing a website. So that's their motivation, it's quite different. These are some of the tools that do this, easyusability.com, usertesting.com, trymyui. I'm not saying these tools are bad for it, I'm saying that the recruiting option is not optimal. You do not wanna to talk to people who they're not really using your products. What's the danger? Well, the danger is this panelist has to sit in front of your product and say, hmm, I wonder how a real user would use this. 
And if you're not sure really what the big deal is there, I have a video clip to show you. So this is interesting. Back when these tools first came out, I was really annoyed. You know, I wanted to know more about them. And a year ago, I had the unfortunate experience of having to buy a new refrigerator. And if anybody has ever had to do this online, it's quite painful. I don't know why, but a year ago, nobody had pictures of the insides of refrigerators. I talked to you about this while you worked at Sears. <laughs> and it is so frustrating, not even the manufacturer's websites. Now, if you're looking it up right now, you will see they've gotten better in a year. Lowe's.com, unfortunately, still hasn't in a year. But it was very frustrating. So I want to paint this scenario for you. This is something that my husband and I were doing almost like every Saturday for a month. We'd go to an appliance store, walking down aisle after aisle of refrigerator. We'd spot a refrigerator that caught our fancy. We'd walk up to it. What's one of the first things we would do? Open the door, right? That's what you want to see the inside of a fridge. I did a test and I thought, okay, all right, if I'm going to test these unmoderated tools, and you know, my clients were asking about them, they were interested in them, I wanted to have a fair opinion of them. I said, this is a good test, this is a good aha test. If I can run a study and ask somebody to pick out, you know, buy a refrigerator that's right for you and purchase it and tell me if you have all the information you need to make a purchase. Four out of five of the people that I tested with usertesting.com said, I have all the information I need to make a purchase. Bullshit. Because <laughs> let me tell you something. If I was doing this study for real, if Lowe's.com hired me, and they wanted me to do a study on their e-commerce process for buying a refrigerator, what do you think some of my recruiting criteria would be? They definitely would have had to have either bought a refrigerator or were in the process of buying a refrigerator within the last six months. Definitely. And what's interesting is the one person in my study who actually did mention over and over and over again how annoyed he was that he couldn't see the inside of a fridge was because he actually mentioned in the beginning, by coincidence, I actually was thinking about getting a refrigerator. So it really does matter who you test. So here's an example of what a usertesting.com video looks like. All right, uh, we are at Lowe's.com and I am in need of a new refrigerator, which is not necessarily far from the truth, as uh, mine has been making funny noises, although it still seems to be working You can see the somewhat. task panel at the top. Um, right. Find a refrigerator that is right for me. Um, I guess fridges that have appliances. All right. I, mean, I would love to see the insides of the fridges. That would be that would be much more useful than the outside. Most fridges outside are going to look like a fridge. They've got doors on them. I mean, it's not you know they have different colors, but I'm much more interested in the inside of the fridge, which I can't see. So I generally like to see the inside of a fridge before I buy a fridge. Uh, certainly when I've bought fridges in the past, I have opened the doors of them because that's what you need to do to see how a fridge would be inside. Um, so the fact that I could not see the insides of any of the fridges was, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't like it very much. Um, so I can't say I honestly found what I was looking for necessarily. There was no, I mean, all the stuff that you can just see if you just open up a fridge, there was, you, you couldn't see any of it here. So I guess 
I would be hesitant to buy it without actually looking at a fridge. Now, I normally do that in person, but if there was a sort of a picture of the open fridge online, I would look at that. But here, it's just sort of boxes and basically a bunch of numbers that tell you how big the fridge is. And that's, that's not all there is to a fridge, for me, anyway. I uh, hope that's helpful. Okay. Is that helpful? Absolutely. Absolutely. If Lowe's.com hired me and I did this, would I include this data? Absolutely. It matters who you test. So are these tools horrible? Is it horrible to use a recruiting panel? No, if they happen to meet the recruiting criteria. <laughs> what are the chances of that? That's what you have to ask yourself. So what's the danger? Again, this is the danger. People thinking that they have this great shortcut to recruiting. I saw this tweet that annoyed me. I blocked the user, so don't sweat it. <laughs> Think I'm going to give usertesting.com a try. Unmoderated usability testing without the need to recruit sounds good. It's probably the most important step in putting together a study. It cannot be skipped. There are no shortcuts that can be taken, none whatsoever. It's just, it's scary. It's scary that these tools promote that, and that's my concern with them. You know, a tool is a tool. Our methods and techniques are what matter. And if our tool allows us to do our methods and techniques better, then I'm all for it. But if they're starting to get us to take shortcuts that we shouldn't take, that's not cool. <laughs> all right, so what are some tools with some other options so you don't have to use recruiting panels? There's a lot. There's Open Hallway, Navflow, U2E, Keynote. A lot of them have all different options. You can have four different ways that you can recruit, and you'll see that in the handout as well. Now, Loop 11, this is a screenshot of what typically a Loop 11 dashboard would look like. This is a tool I use a lot, and I really do recommend them. Very easy to use, very good data, very well-priced. I think it's $3.50 per study. You have unlimited tasks, and a lot of them put limitations on how many tasks that you can ask, so I like that. TreeJack is one from Optimal Workshop. Now, some of you might be thinking that's familiar with this, like, oh, is this a usability testing tool? To me, it is. The reason why is because it does task elicitation. So again, find a cabbage. That's a task. This tool mainly just tests your IA, your navigation. So you'd say, oh, I'd find it here. And then what it gives you is just some click path analysis. They also have another tool called Chalkmark, which again, this gives task elicitation buy half a cabbage. So basically with this tool, you're just testing a static screenshot of a design and you're saying, where would you click first? And then you get a nice heat map afterwards. So these are good tools to check out, very cost effective. Now there are a lot of other automated tools that offer video and audio, which is great because you can actually kind of get that real feedback, not that yes, no kind of data. And Open Hallway would probably be the one that I would suggest the most out of these, mainly because they don't have any restrictions on recruiting. You can ask as many tasks as you want. The downloading features are really easy. But these tools are really interesting because a lot of people just send out the link and then within 24 hours they're watching videos. Now this is really interesting. Within the last couple months, these tools have come out webcam eye tracking. Kind of scary. Uh, <laughs> now, I am not going to get into the eye tracking debate. I have too much to say about that. Buy me a drink later. Maybe we'll get going on that. But UI is in beta. And actually, this one does video as well as the eye tracking. So you're getting the whole thing. Gazehawk actually only does the eye tracking. So you're only getting that analysis at the end. OK, so I've been talking about this handout. This is where you get it. I was going to print out some nice glossy pictures, and I thought, I save a tree. No need for that. Slideshare.net, 
slash usable interface, and it's the only document out of all the presentations on there that you'll see. Again, 29 tools are listed there. All their pricing information from what I could get, which is really annoying, a lot of these tools don't even have pricing information, and it's a tool. So that tells me you know, they're making the price different for different clients, which is annoying. <laughs> so it's a really great, valuable handout for you to just start your search. You know, It takes away a lot of the, where do I even start to look for these tools and how do I evaluate them? You'll see a lot of the features covered and some resources, remoteusability.com is a great blog. If you want to know when these tools come out, you can check that out. It's a great book, Remote Research, and Rosenfeld Media has it out on their booth. And then I wrote an article on this on UX Matters that you can also check out. And that's it. Are there any questions? I think Crystal or someone has a mic. Oh, you have it right here. I'm curious for you to talk more about the analysis piece, because when I do a moderated study, typically it takes me about three hours to analyze one session. Mm -hmm. And now I've used TreeJack, and it doesn't take me three hours to analyze one session with TreeJack. However, it certainly takes me far, far longer to analyze hundreds of responses in TreeJack than it does in Chalkmark. Yep. So if you can talk a little bit about, you know, I can't quite imagine how I would deal, even if I only have five tasks, how would I analyze responses from 250 people? It's really hard. I say I have the time down to about 40 minutes for open-ended questions. So if it's a couple hundred people and you have a couple hundred responses to one open-ended question, you're really looking at it. And it's just, honestly, it's quickly just scanning out the theme. So as soon as I see something new, I pull it out. See something new, pull it out. And then I just start seeing where the clusters are, you know, in the analysis. It's actually a little easier than when I'm doing moderated studies because I'm not transcribing my notes and then someone else's notes and doing long debriefs, and that's just the hardest part. So it's easier for me in that regard, but honestly, it's just most of them spit them out in a spreadsheet that makes it easy to go down and see. Now, the quantitative stuff is done pretty easily for you. I mean, there's not much analysis that has to go into that with the numbers. Did that help answer your question? I don't a little bit. I was thinking more, though, about analyzing the video. Oh, the video. Okay. Well, it's the same. It's when you're doing the video, it's I'm a note taker again, and I have to go through, and it's exactly the same. And so, would you actually analyze the results for oh, yeah. video for 200 people? Oh, for 200 people. Well, no. With the video, I don't do 200 people. You know, I keep it the same. That's a very good point. I've had clients who have suggested, let's do this. Let's do 200 people. And then I said, okay, great. Are you going to sit back and watch all these 200 tests? They say, no. I said, well, do you want to pay me to do it? And then I tell them how much that would cost. And they say, no. <laughs> it's expensive to do that. So you got to think again with these video tools. Oh, it's so great. Look, I can send it out to all these people. Who's going to have the time to do that? So you have to look deeper into it. That was a great point I meant to mention. And another question? I can't stress how important it is to do that pilot. Not even just a pilot, but to test the unmoderated tools yourself with some candidate study. Because when I tried to bring them into Comcast, there are some interfaces that we have that use technology that some of these tools can't track appropriately. So therefore, you're limited in what you can study. So did you happen to look at that? At Particularly, Loop 11 was the one at the time that wouldn't mm -hmm. support JavaScript for some of the navigation. So therefore, I couldn't actually test faceted navigation. 
through it. So people would just stop the test as soon as they landed on that faceted navigation screen and then I would get no more data. Uh, so did you happen to do any of that in your analysis of some of these tools? Which ones were limited in what they could do with the website technology that's out there? Unfortunately for me, a lot of my clients have bought into these big tools. So they spent you know, $15,000 on Relevant View and then I had to use that tool. And that was unfortunate because I didn't have a chance to actually evaluate some of these tools. But when I started working with some other clients and Loop 11 started to become a favorite of mine, then absolutely it would be one that I would push and then in the pilot we would see whether or not we'd have any restrictions. Hi there. Great talk. Thank okay. you. Are any of these tools available for intranets or are private sites that you have to log into? You know what? I am not sure. Yes? Okay, Crystal knows. Yes? <laughs> I am not sure if there are limitations. So I'm on like a developer feed from Loop 11. They just released HTTPS support so that you can support logged in sessions. They didn't when I was trying to bring it in. So that's at least one tool that you can test out in a candidate study with a logged in session to see if it tracks the data appropriately. You know, she in the back had her hand up a while, I think. Thanks. Actually, my question is a bit related to the last one. I was mm -hmm. wondering if there is any way of testing non-web-based software oh, with these yes, tools. Oh, yes, absolutely. Just do a prototype. What I do is, if it's, let's just say, a desktop application, hopefully they're in an earlier stage where they're just doing mock-ups or low-fidelity prototypes, and I just turn it into either a clickable prototype of some kind or maybe an interactive PDF or anything that someone can interact with, and then we can just throw it on a server and access it. As long as it's accessible, you know, clickable image map, anything, you can test it. Do you know of anyone looking at mobile? Remote mobile testing? Remote mobile. Okay, so Nate Bolt is doing a lot of research in this, actually. I have not had any clients that had to do any remote mobile work. He actually covers it briefly in his book, and there's some interesting things happening with that. Unfortunately, from my experience, I can't speak from it. The tools aren't really working, I don't think, for it. I don't think it's really set up for that. It's got to be accessed on a regular computer. I don't know if there will be tools, I'm sure at the rate that they're coming out, they're probably gonna start having tools for that. But I don't know if I'm much help with that question. <laughs> yeah. You keep mentioning the pilot. Are you talking about an unmoderated pilot or do you recommend walking through it with someone so? Oh, good question. Well, usually I'll send the link out to someone on the team who's unfamiliar with what I'm doing and view their responses and actually talk to them and ask them how they thought about it. That's usually how I go about it. You can do it in person. Either way works. As long as you're doing some sort of form where you're actually testing to make sure that you're getting the results you need. Like Crystal said where her tests failed and if you do a test with someone, have them actually do it unmoderated, you get that data. If you're watching them do it in person, you wouldn't get that data. So it's probably best maybe even to do it both ways. So what are some of the variables that influence whether or not you want to do unmoderated testing or traditional or both? Okay, good question. For me, it's whether or not the client, because I'm external, I'm always dealing with clients. And the problem I have is that they're always wanting to get more feedback from more people than just five or six people or seven people. If they're really adamant 
to have statistically significant data that I can't give them, that's when I start recommending this. I don't go in almost ever recommending this. Like I said before, I'll never turn down the opportunity to do qualitative research with real end users. If I have to, that's when I do the complemented research. I'm not saying there's not valuable data and actually going in, suggesting it as a package, but I'm always conscious of their budgets, their time, and why I do it. If sometimes I have great clients, they look at three people, that's good for them. They know it's a problem. You know, five people in a round, they don't need these big reports. They're off, they're making their changes almost immediately as soon as testing is done. Others, they want it more formal. They need to be bought in on the results. One of the things that I've been working with, and I use usertesting.com, is doing kind of rapid prototyping. So if you're testing a small enough feature, just having a small amount of people that make the changes as you're seeing that they're running into roadblocks and then retesting. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to ask if you were doing that and also to comment that it's obviously really, really important to get somebody who can think aloud. And that's yes. another problem with having the unmoderated is you're totally dependent on them having a good test subject up there, you don't have any way to elicit that. Absolutely, you can't say, so what are you thinking? <laughs> You're not there to say that. But what you were saying before, I actually have a client, Agilent Technologies, and last year I did a co-presentation with that client on rapid iterative testing and design. And we actually work with a three-day turnaround. So with this, it's actually very easy because the results are so quick and you can change, I mean, just make a new test, send out the links, and you're good. So it works out very well for us. And we can do it on as short as three-day iterations. So I think it works out well. I think there's one more back here. And I think this will be the last one so you guys have enough time to get a good seat for Jared. Are you doing affinity diagramming with this and what tools are you using to do that? No, I'm not doing affinity diagramming with this. I think affinity diagramming has its place for doing prioritization and you know exercises like that. For me, that's more about if I want to, after I've done this analysis, if I want to do some kind of affinity diagramming with the team to try and compile, you know, we have all this data, all these data points, how do we make sense of it? I actually do something very different than an affinity diagram. I run very in-depth debrief sessions. And from those debrief sessions, we come out with clarity on what the key findings are and what the priorities are. And it's a very long, like someone said, it can be three hours to debrief one test. And these are long sessions. And I've really dedicated teams that, you know, my clients come in, they want a quick fix, they're not going to get it from me. They have to be involved. They have to be sharing their insights as well. They have to be watching the tests. And I find personally affinity diagramming to be an exercise that nobody wants to participate in. Nobody wants to get up there and shuffle around the post-it notes and they just, they're lazy. <laughs> and nobody's excited about it, usually but me. So I tried to modify what I do to fit the needs of the teams and it seems like just getting everyone in a debrief and if you want to talk more about it later, I can actually explain a little bit more about the debrief session and how we structure it. All right, well thank you all very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the 2011 IA Summit. For more great user experience design content, visit UIE.com and sign up for our free newsletter, UIE Tips.